0: I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I am once again joined by my friend, Chuck Marone, CEO and founder of the Strong Towns organization. Chuck, thanks for, so much for joining me again this week, and I hope that you are starting to feel better and recover from your boat-related injury.
1: <laughs> hey, Abby. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Yes, the pain is mostly gone and so like i can sit here and and be completely comfortable. So that's that's nice. It's healing and uh you calling it a boat related injury is just piling on at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: never going to let that go. I feel like i jinxed you. <laughs> uh,
1: it it makes it sound like some like jaws type incident happened as opposed to me just falling out of my boat when I was trying to get out. So yeah, I don't know whether it sounds more glamorous or less the way you describe it, but.
0: Well, you mentioned that you have the pirate leg to go with it. I so. <laughs> do you have a
1: pirate leg now. Yes.
0: Yeah. Um, so now you can walk around and maybe you can even go boating. Uh-huh, so yeah. there's a benefit.
1: <laughs> uh-huh. We will see.
0: We'll see. Well, the article that we'll be discussing today was published in Forbes by a policy contributor named Roger Valdez entitled The COVID-19 Emergency Should Not Lead to Rent Control. The author starts out by... Explaining how emergencies are often responded to by governments in ways that are well-intentioned yet lead to long-term unintended consequences. Using an airplane analogy, passengers want turbulence to stop immediately and the pilots are eager to please. However, multiple studies are suggesting that while rent control may prevent short-term displacement, the policy has negatively contributed to long-term affordability. In many cases, for example, landlords have apparently responded to rent control policies by converting the use of their property for owner occupancy, reducing the overall supply of rental units available and driving up the prices for non-owners. The author shares concerns around our present response to the economic fallout of COVID-19 saying that rent control policies enacted now will likely result in rising housing prices for renters in the future. And that municipalities should instead focus on increasing supply of housing rather than trying to control the cost of housing. So rent control is kind of one of those high-level blanket policies that get implemented at scale, and it's not totally surprising to me that it would have long-term negative impacts. The author's arguments for how to address this issue seems to be kind of another bit of a blanket statement as well, and I'm, but I'm much more inclined to support the idea that increasing supply is an important long-term strategy. Can you break this down a little bit and talk about whether or not you think increasing supply is the key that we should be focusing on right now?
1: The frustrating thing about this, and it's really the frustrating thing about this entire housing conversation, is that I think everybody acknowledges that housing is a deeply complex problem, a deeply complex system. Uh, There are so many different things that affect the actual price of housing yet everybody has like a simple solution you know if we just do x it will solve the problem in this case you know if we just build more housing it will fix things in the case of you know the rent control if we just stop the greed you know it will uh, it will balance itself out i think his analysis of price as an altimeter is both right and then like also destructively wrong and i think maybe we start with that he uses the idea of flying in an airplane and the altimeter tells you the elevation that you're at and what a lot of people who want price controls want to do is just like shake up the altimeter or throw away the altimeter or or not like listen to this important feedback signal and that is not very helpful i mean if you're in a plane you actually need to know how high you are that's a that 's a rather important piece of information and if you 're working in a housing market, you actually need to know like what a market price is because you know throwing that out or goofing around with that you're what you 're doing is you're uh, getting rid of the feedback loops that are going to actually drive what you should do. I think where this analogy falls short is an altimeter is really measuring you know the air pressure and using that in a very simple way to give you a reading of how high you are if we look at housing if pricing was just measuring supply and demand and that was all it measured it's a little closer to air pressure and actually giving you like an accurate readout but there's so many different things that go into the price of housing. Whether it is, you know, the distortions that we put on at the federal level. Uh, let's talk about home mortgage interest deduction. Let's talk about, uh, you know, state and local tax subsidies. Let's talk about Fannie and Freddie, the whole securitized secondary market we've set up. Uh, how we're distorting interest rates. You get to the local level, you talk about zoning, the artificial controls of zoning, the uh, approval processes and the way we've set those up and basically made it really easy or easier, comparatively speaking, for large moneyed, well-financed developers to go through a process and, and small developers to really struggle with that process. You can go through the entire system and see that we're not measuring really the outcome in price of one variable. You know what the air pressure is, and then converting that into something useful. What we're doing is we're getting like a huge amount of data. It's I think if you were going to do an analogy, it's 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 really more like before nine eleven, all the chatter that they were getting on different streams, and then trying to predict you know what what would be the outcome this terrorist attack. What we look at in the housing market is we're getting all this incoming data, and we're trying to like convert it into price, and it's just a very messy. Unclear, unclean process. And so, you know, to get back to your original question, is building more going to solve this problem? No. Like, I think that building more has to be part of the solution. And I certainly think there's a case to build more. But, you know, will building more give us affordable housing? I think that's an absurd assertion that's based on like a limited data set and a limited understanding of what's actually going on.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. The housing market is very complex and nuanced, and the macro and microeconomic scales have a lot to do with what is happening locally in your housing market, wherever you are. So we don't necessarily have a pure free market that enables us to apply simple supply demand policies to it. Distortions are created by municipal policies and laws, as well as through financial practices and realities within the development industry. Because of the complexity, I tend to think uh, that housing is really a predicament and rather than a problem, as you would say. Um, not only are conditions vastly different in big cities like New York or San Francisco than in, you know, mid-sized cities like Kansas City, Indianapolis, Memphis, but the right housing policy direction can vary pretty greatly based on just where you're located in a region. For example, our upper scale first ring suburbs have a vastly different context in terms of their real estate realities and potential approaches. For affordable housing than in other parts of the city. So, the ways that we address housing requires us to really think deeply about potential solutions based on locational realities and economic contexts. That is kind of an unsatisfying reality, I think, for policymakers because it's not simple and requires continuous effort and adaptable approaches. Like I said, housing is a predicament because predicaments have outcomes and problems have solutions. Housing policy is one of those things that I think of often just because it's played such a core role in defining who has access to prosperity in this country and who does not. It's something that we've made very complicated financially, tying housing inflation to the solvency of insurance companies and retirement plans. While I'm sympathetic to people who advocate for rent control, I'm skeptical of blanket policies to address complicated predicaments that have real life impacts on the well-being of people. It's important to consider just a vast number of different things um, that impact the cost of housing um, and may result in it increasing perpetually. So tying real estate market to insurance companies and retirement plans that I mentioned is one of them. And those are things that local municipalities can't necessarily control. Same with the cost of construction materials, for example. Something that I do agree with the author on is that cities do have some power that they should be leveraging through zoning and building codes, as well as development processes to begin to address housing, and it's really just one piece of the overall puzzle. So just a couple of things that come off in my head is that zoning and building codes can lead to the necessity of building parking garages or elevators. So those costs are shifted to residential tenants driving the rent upward. Minimum lot size standards partnered with parking standards restrict missing middle houses like duplexes and walk-up apartment buildings that are historically built on small lots with little or no parking spaces. One thing that can be challenging from a regulatory standpoint is the requirement for large-scale apartment projects to be mixed use and activating the first floor with some sort of retail space. So the intent is sound, but if the developer can't lease the first floor to a commercial tenant, the risk is essentially passed off onto the residential tenants. Um, So that drives rent upwards. And then, of course, there's also the development process in general. The more expensive and complicated your process is, the more risk developers face. So this is especially true for small-scale developers who can't afford to overspend on legal or other professional fees as well as fees that are required by the city. So having an expensive development process is likely going to push small-scale developers out of your city that may not seem to impact the supply of housing, but over time, that certainly does. So just you know, long story short, local housing policy and zoning, that's where my perspective starts on the topic. And from that lens, it's really important to recognize the value of supporting a diverse housing portfolio in a community and legalizing and supporting it. And this means that, you know, we have diversity of type as well as diversity of ownership models, age, and condition. There's so many simple fixes to development codes that, local leadership should be supporting if they are concerned about what they can do about affordability and housing diversity. But I will add that I'm not confident that the perfect development code is going to automatically result in housing affordability, just like building more supply. It's not necessarily going to result in housing affordability. I think they're just a part of a bigger puzzle.
1: I had a class on housing affordability in in graduate school. And I have to say I felt like I was being gaslighted the entire time. Like n- none of it made any sense to me to the point where I started to think like am I am I nuts? Am I crazy? Like what what don't I get that everybody else in this room seems to just intuitively grasp. It didn't make any sense. Let me ask you a couple questions. You are a homeowner now, right? Right. Right. You you have purchased a home Uh, You put some money into fixing it up. You certainly put some of your own energy and and effort into fixing it up. What if I told you that in order for housing to be affordable in your city, you could define affordable however you want. I don't really care. But let's just say affordable in a broad sense, where people who live in Kansas City can afford to live there, that the value of your house needed to decline by 50%. If I just said the policy things we're going to do right now are going to result in that, how would you react to that as a homeowner? That's a really good
0: question. I mean, I I think the problem with that is that you buy it at whatever that market price is. The thing that is tricky about, you know, buying a house is that everybody has some sort of ownership in the cost of housing going up forever to make it a return on their investment, which I think is a little bit I just think it's misguided because my question has always been how is that even possible for the cost of housing to go up forever and how is it possible for the cost of housing to go up faster than inflation forever so
1: well it it, it isn't but what you're talking about are the conditions of a of a bubble
0: it's the conditions of a bubble and it would essentially mean that everybody ends up. You know, their house is now worth less than what they have a loan on it for, which means that everybody is underwater. And that I think would have other impacts that could also be really bad.
1: Right. But if you look at the system today, we have uh, price to earnings ratios in 2008, where everybody looks back and says, yep, that was a bubble. Yep, that was a housing bubble. The price to earnings ratios today are higher in aggregate across the country and higher in the hottest markets than they were in 2008. And when you talk to people about it, they will make all kinds of statements about how we're just not building enough, it's not keeping up, prices are, you know, if we just built more or if we just did rent control or what have you. And the reality is, is we have created a historic bubble. We've, we've re-inflated something that we called a bubble into something else that is an even bigger financial bubble. And I feel like everybody tries to like move around that and pretend that that's not true and come up with all kinds of reasons why that isn't the case. The effect of that is too difficult to comprehend. Not only if your house fell in half, would you be underwater? But the vast majority of people in Kansas City would be underwater. The vast majority of people in Brainerd would be underwater. This would mean a huge deflationary spiral in housing. Great if you're affordable housing. If you're trying to get into it, uh, horrible if you're trying to run a local government. Horrible if you're trying to create jobs, have an economy, uh, do what have you. We've created, as part of you know, smoothing out the volatility, to use the analogy from the Forbes article, we've got ourselves into a trap where if housing does not go up annually, our economy falls apart. Our economy just goes bad. It just starts to unravel. When we talk about affordable housing and people can't afford housing, and should we build more? Should we put an apartment here? Should we you know ram this th- down people's throats? Should we create some statewide code that does this? To me, they're all dealing with the symptoms of the fact that we've created this underlying financial Rubric that doesn't make any sense. It it doesn't work long term. And so, like, I'm sympathetic to people who want to do rent control because I'm like, I don't know really how to fix this at the local level besides build some resilience against it. At the end of chapter five of my book, I say this exact thing I'm like, this whole like river that we're swimming in, that's just this big flood of capital, it makes no sense. And because it makes no sense, all the policies that derive from it are not going to make any sense. The only thing you can do is start to buffer yourself as a community against it. And is rent control part of that? Maybe temporarily in some places. Are subsidies part of that? Maybe in some places. I don't know. The most, to me, effective way to start to build a buffer against that craziness is to make your system as organically responsive as it can. We need to allow small homes. We need to allow bottom-up development. We need to allow every neighborhood to evolve and adapt incrementally. We need to uh, limit the amount of hot capital flows coming into our community, distorting our underlying land values, distorting our underlying property values. And we need to try to inch our way towards a price-to-earnings ratio that would be not seven to one or eight to one, uh, but something historical like two to one, something closer to that. So that when this thing unravels, we actually have less far to fall. That seems a little apocalyptic to be saying it that way, but I actually think like that's, that's the only thing that makes any sense to me. And everything else is kind of dealing with symptoms around the edges.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, to bring it back to just simply increasing supply I start to think about, for whatever reason to me, that looks like large-scale, big projects as a way of just increasing supply as quickly as possible. I think it's important to understand that new housing is likely going to be less inherently affordable than rehabilitation and reuse of existing buildings. And new construction is not only incredibly expensive, but financing favors large-scale development projects that result in those kind of like build it all at once to a finished state apartment projects. And if we're talking about rental housing, that's what we're probably going to get. But, you know, because of the cost of construction, I'm skeptical to say that increasing the supply of that type is going to result in short-term outcomes for renters for you know more affordable housing
1: right but i I think part of that is the feedback loop right like i don't think we're doing that at scale you know i was in this conversation with someone about california and they're like we need three and a half million new units you know immediately and i'm like you're not going to get thirty five thousand units the way you're doing it if i have to have a large developer come in take six months or 12 months to go through a permitting process to build one large building that's going to have 200 units I'm sorry. You're not going to do that at scale. You know, like that's not going to solve anybody's problem. You agree with that? Or am I missing something?
0: Yes, but the problem is is that I think new housing units are much more likely to be a lower cost if they're the result of existing building stock that has been retrofitted. Some examples might include like an old corner building that has been reinvested in to create two new apartments or a single family house that gets split up into two units or even a garage or basement that's converted into an accessory dwelling unit. This approach increases the supply in a way that is more fractal and it's not as in bulk. So it's kind of harder to measure and control and do in a way that is really quick potentially.
1: So Abby, let me break that down for a second, because I think what you said is is profound and I think it, it has a deep economic consequence to it. So let's say you have a house that's worth $200,000 and under the, you know, market urbanist Forbes dude, uh, type of analysis. What we're going to do is we're just going to build Texas donut style housing. We're just going to you know mass produce housing as much as we can until the supply overwhelms the demand and prices fall. Under that scenario, which I don't think is possible, I actually think that that is itself, <laughs> we could get into why that's not going to work, but let's pretend that it did work that would mean that your housing price would fall from 200000 to something below that, something affordable. We'd build enough housing till it became affordable. Your prices would fall. Instead, what you just said is, what if I took my $200,000 house and I invested $40,000 into it and got an accessory apartment or made it into a duplex or had a little rental unit? Well, now what's happened is that for your financing, you actually have a more valuable house. You're not underwater. Your housing value hasn't dropped. You actually are solvent. The local government is also solvent. Uh, They've not experienced this huge drop in value. The overall economy has not crashed because you've not defaulted on your mortgage. You don't have a deflationary spiral. And oh, guess what? You also have another housing unit that you can rent out at an affordable price. I don't see any other way that we build our way out of this mess without crashing the entire system other than to do it incrementally and organically at the block level.
0: Exactly. So by enabling multi-unit houses and accessory dwelling units, I think that you could really likely increase the supply of housing in a way that actually benefits local owners and renters who, and by the way, the local owners could live on the same property as the tenant. I mean, this is really not a new concept and it's sad that we're talking about it like it is. (laughs) I live in a neighborhood and this is how this neighborhood was developed. And this is how people live in this neighborhood. And what is exciting to me about this approach is that it changes the framework for the modern American dream in this country. Many people don't know that right now you can use conventional financing to purchase up to four units, so this means that home ownership is not limited to buying, you know, the prototypical single-family house with a fence around it. You can buy a duplex up to a fourplex, and if you're a renter today, imagine if you could purchase a two-unit house or a house with an accessory dwelling unit to offset your cost of living um, and make long-term ownership more feasible and then also have a small accessory unit that is going to be more affordable than just brand new market rate housing. I just would really like to see a housing approach that focuses on reinvesting in existing building stock and you know even driving development on vacant lots in existing neighborhoods. I can't really see a strategy where we're just building large-scale apartment projects everywhere and then hoping that eventually the, you know, there's so much supply that it all crashes and moves downward because I would think that that would mean that all of those developers would be underwater or at least the financing would be because they were expecting, you know, at one price point for their rents. And if there's an oversupply, then it all crashes. Is that not correct?
1: No, that's totally correct. Well, and in, until we also acknowledge the feedback loop of You know, when you buy a place and you're going to put 120 uh, apartment units on it, the land value is distorted. It's artificially distorted upward. When you have these large leaps in zoning, you tend to have two outcomes. You have stagnation throughout broadly every place, and then randomly every now and then you have these artificial leaps. And a big part of the affordability crisis is the way we've actually chosen to deal with the affordability crisis, which is these large, large leaps. They're actually part of the upward distortion of land values. That's perfectly fine for the Wall Street backed investor. They can pay those high prices and they can hold on to the land for a long time and they can pass those prices on. And and, and they've got a big safety net as long as land values are going up because the appreciation of the market bails them out for any mistakes they make. If we had a more localized market, one that wasn't upwardly distorting land values artificially with these large leaps, uh, you would actually see like a supply demand kind of market reemerge and prices actually equilibrate at places where people could afford them in ways that wouldn't wreck the market. If you want to look at like the Yimby Nimby conversation or the the pure like market-based people versus the socialist rent control people, I feel like they're two extreme kind of very narrow myopic views of what's going on when what's actually taking place is so much more complex and deeply intertwined than either of them want to admit.
0: It's very deep and complex and the solution is legalizing accessory dwelling units. I'm
1: just kidding. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think that if we started with legalizing the next increment of intensity everywhere, in other words, if you have a single family home neighborhood, you can build an ADU, you can build an accessory apartment, you can build a duplex. Uh, if we just started with that, it would be a cosmic leap towards what we need to get to. Like, I feel like that is like the first big step in the right direction.
0: Yeah. I'd like to see that. So we are almost 30 minutes into this conversation. We're going a little bit long today. So I think that we will have to end on that note. But before we end this episode of UpZoned, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything we've been listening to, reading, watching, um, or just anything that has been captivating our time. So Chuck, what have you been up to these days?
1: Um, well, I've, I've gotten off my butt now and uh, have started to, <laughs> I, with my peg leg, I actually was able to make dinner for the first time in about three weeks, which I make dinner about half the time at my house. So that was a, that was a big deal. And hopefully I'll be like lowering the burden for the rest of my family caring for me. I'm almost done with the Jeff Shara novel I brought up a while back, the novel about Pearl Harbor. It's called To Wake the Giant. Uh, he writes the historical fiction. And I've actually, it's prompted me to go and watch the movie Midway, which was not a very good movie. It was okay. I watched it in the theaters and I went back and watched it again now at home. And it, it's okay. I really liked the Pearl Harbor movie from like 2001 uh, with Ben Affleck and uh, a couple others. I, I went back and watched that too. And then Dan Carlin, his latest hardcore history episodes have all been on. World War Two in the Pacific, and I've actually gone back now and started re-listening to them, uh, anticipating, you know, when in the next six months he'll get the next one out. So, yeah, I'm kind of all jonesing on World War Two at this moment.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a good balance of things to be captivating your time. Right now, I am reading a book that you are probably familiar with, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, called The Geography of Nowhere by James (laughs) Howard Kunstler. Yes. So I guess for those who haven't read the book, the author writes about the effects of our modern city building practices in the United States that have and continue to develop contexts that degrade the public realm and create incoherent places. So I'll admit that this book is kind of like a big heaping helping of confirmation bias for me, but it is really well-written and provocative. I think that his insights in about creating places that are worth caring about and the importance of urban design in the public realm continues to be really important in our society. And it's really interesting to consider the impacts of the American experiment Um, and how we've kind of favored individual property ownership as a way of upholding liberty and how that has impacted our caretaking of the public realm from his perspective, including streets, parks, civic spaces, kind of all those spaces that we take for granted in a lot of places in our country. So I, I, with the, you know, emergence of the open streets movement, I, am hoping that there's some hope for how we take care of the public realm and design the public realm in the future. Um, I'd recommend the book. So anybody who hasn't read it, um, I am actually listening to it right now. And it really provides an interesting perspective um, that ties together American history with city planning and uh, urban and architectural design.
1: Yeah. Essential reading. It's funny because I, I never would have dreamt this 15 years ago. But Jim's actually grown to be a, a friend. I like him a lot. His latest book is Living in the Long Emergency. And I, have, I was asked and very honored to be able to write a review of it for the American Conservative. And that should be coming out sometime in August, I think, in their print magazine.
0: Well, I'll be looking forward to hearing that. I know that um, we've talked about that book before on this show um, because I was reading it a couple of months ago and it gave me quite a bit of anxiety towards the beginning, a little less towards the middle of the book and the end of the book was very good. So don't listen to it on double speed. Chuck might recommend that, but I wouldn't do that.
1: (laughs) I always listen on double speed. There's There's not enough time in this life for single speed.
0: I'm going to get a shirt that says that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That'd be a good shirt. Yeah, I'd It'd buy a one good of those.
0: Shirt. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Let
1: me